If you've got a copy of God's Word, if you would open it to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Thank you. If you have uh, been around church for much uh, in your life, I'm going to blow your mind this morning by reversing the order of our sermon. Here's what we're going to do. Here is the invitation right off the start. And uh, yeah, I know it's stunning. Uh, the invitation right at the outset, and, and even to make this weaker and less compelling, this is going to be the exact same invitation for the next nine weeks, all right? So invitation at the start, same invitation for the next nine weeks. Here's the, here's the question. What would it look like or what would need to change in your life if you believed God's word to you this morning, okay? This is the lens I want us to put on the biblical text And where we're going to leave each of these sermons is, if I really believe that this were true, what would need to change about my life? We're going to begin a consideration of really just a a sentence at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, where he summarizes what he calls the fruits of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit are these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, what we're going to do with this text is, is really two outcomes for us and two things I want you to do through the course of the summer. One is some vivid, clear self-reflection. The philosopher Socrates once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. What I want to allow us to do this summer is to examine our lives to hold these virtues, these traits up to our life and say, regardless of whether I've been around the church much, regardless of whether I've heard these texts before or not, what would it look like for my life to change in correspondence to what God says to me through this text? And then secondly, I want to encourage you to have community conversations around this passage. Uh, The outcomes and the application of these texts are going to be very Uh, tangible. They're going to be very concrete. And so I want you to, around the dinner table, talk and interact. This should be great conversation for parents with their children, for your small groups, for grabbing a cup of coffee with someone and hanging out and interacting with God's Word from this passage. Now, it is dangerous for us to do what we're going to do over the summer uh, for at least two reasons. We're going to pick up really an an isolated sentence uh, or two at the end of a book. This is a bit like trying to pick out the 67th phrase of an email that you sent, right? It's really dangerous to attempt to understand the author's intent and what's happening in this when we've got such a small segment of Scripture, which is why we don't do this very often, uh, because it it is dangerous for us. So what I want us to do is take two zooms out, and ask the question, what's going on? Why is Paul saying this? And this will help us get a running start into these fruits. The big zoom out, at least at the 30,000-foot view, is what is going on in the book of Galatians? What we have at the end of our Bibles are these various letters that Paul writes, most often to churches that he had some role in establishing. Acts 13 and 14 tells us the story of the establishment of this church in Galatia as God's Spirit begins to expand to the Gentiles beyond the Jewish nation to the Gentiles, and a church is planted there. 
Now, we know that something has happened since Paul has left because of the way this letter begins. Paul is none too pleased at the outset of the book of Galatians because since he's left, others have come and infiltrated the church with false teaching. Particularly the false teaching here to these Gentile non-Jewish believers is if you really love God, if you're really one of God's people, then you will now also obey the Jewish laws. You'll keep the Sabbath, you'll practice circumcision, you'll maintain the dietary restrictions. They've, he, Paul, warns the church here that the answer to Christian worship, the answer to the life God intends, isn't to keep all the rules, nor is it to veer in the other ditch and do just whatever you please. But he tells us a different path for God's people, which informs the zoom in of one more level in Galatians 5. Notice this consistent refrain, first in verse 16. He says, walk by the Spirit. Then in verse 18, if you are led by God's Spirit. Then verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with God's Spirit. So walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. This is the alternate path of Christian worship from legalism, keeping all the rules and superimposing on God's grace all these other requirements, or living however you please, discounting the rules altogether. He says the path of the Christian life is one that is led by the Spirit, that walks by the Spirit, that lives by the Spirit, and that keeps in step by the Spirit. And so he proposes for us two tests. These tests help the reader discern whether he is in fact walking with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. These ideas, these notions, are by nature less concrete than here are a list of rules to obey. Rather, he poses two alternate character traits, as it were, or characteristics. List one begins in verse 19. He says, on the one hand, those who don't walk in the Spirit, or those who do the works of the flesh, are evident. And then he gives us a list, a characteristic list of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So the idea is not that this is a total list, but rather that these are demonstrative of a life that walks in the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the language of flesh, he's not necessarily talking about our, our skin. He's talking about a, our, our sinful disposition, our pattern of life apart from God's grace. So he says, if you're not walking in the Spirit, then the only alternative to that is that you're walking in the flesh. And here's how we know. Now, notice that people aren't necessarily working for these actions, they're simply the result of a life lived in the flesh. This is just what comes out of you. By contrast, the life of the Spirit is defined in verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, it's important for us right at the beginning to ask the question, what is this list? What's happening here? And perhaps to answer the question, what is this list, it's better to start with what isn't this list. Summary-wise, this list is not a, a work that God's people are meant to perform. Notice the contrast from verse 19 to verse 22. The works of the flesh, and then he lists them, and then here, in contrast, the fruit of God's Spirit. So what we don't have going on in this passage is a vice list matched with a corresponding virtue list, and Paul saying basically, don't do these things, but rather do these things. Imagine how overwhelming and discouraging that would be if that were the outcome of this passage, right? Like, don't be sexually immoral, don't be impure, don't be filled with strife or jealousy, but be loving, be joyful, have peace, demonstrate patience. This would be a far greater yoke of burden than obeying the Old Testament law. We simply can't do these. So, what is this list then? Well, there's at least four things that this list is, and I would encourage you to jot these down because they'll help frame the next nine weeks for us. One, this list is evidence. It is meant to be for us an evidence marker of the genuineness of our conversion, whether or not we actually have God's Spirit living inside of us. He uses the word fruit here which is just the nature of something that is alive. An alive thing produces these fruits. This is what happens. So, it stands to reason that if God's Spirit is actually actively at work in our lives by virtue of our faith in Christ, then these fruits result. So, as I mentioned last week, they serve a bit of a check engine light function for us. If we're not seeing these fruits, then it forces the question, is God's Spirit actually dwelling in me? Am I actually one of God's people? Secondly, these fruits are a response. So, evidence, secondly, their response. They are an outworking of God's gracious initiative to place His Spirit within you. These fruits are fruits of the Spirit. Apart from God's Spirit at work in your life, you are hopeless, and I am hopeless, to demonstrate these character traits. The objection might be at this point, well, I know some people who make no profession of loving God, and they seem to be loving, joyful, patient, kind, or good. In response, I would have at least three questions. The first would be this, do you actually know them, right? It is one thing for a person to seem to demonstrate these characteristics, to act in a joyful manner when they're around you, but do you know what's going on in their mind when they're sitting on the couch late one afternoon reflecting on the quality of their life? Do you really know them? Secondly, can someone, apart from God's Spirit, persevere in these traits? And I would argue no. 
They may demonstrate a momentary blip on the radar screen of joy or peace or patience, but perseverance in these traits demands God's spirit. And then thirdly, and perhaps the most critical question, are they embodying these traits according to God's definition? Right. And this, this is what we're going to see this morning with the idea of love. It is one thing for us to hold up the world's definition of love and say, yes, a person apart from God's spirit matches that. It is a far different thing to hold up God's definition of love and say, can you demonstrate that apart from God's spirit? So for us who are in Christ, these fruits are a response to God's gracious initiative of placing his spirit within you. Thirdly, they are character, not performance. They are the result of a cultivation of the inner life. And just let me say at the outset, this type of cultivation uh, takes time. You can be blessed with incredible wisdom or beauty or ability and run ahead of your peers, but you cannot fast forward biblical virtue. There's no way to manufacture these traits. They are the result of God's Spirit doing the hard work of refining your character over time. And sadly, chronological age and biblical character are not always the same thing. There is perhaps nothing sadder than someone whose chronological age vastly outpaces their biblical character. So we're asking, is this character being cultivated in me? And lastly, fourthly, these fruits are connected. Uh, Paul uses the singular here, the fruit of the Spirit. They're, they're interconnected. So, it, it, we're hard-pressed to say a person can demonstrate one of these fruits in superabundance and totally lack another one of those, right? A lack of one fruit is a demonstration of a lack of walking in God's Spirit, So you're not likely to be a person who is super abundant in love and yet woefully inadequate in patience. They go together. And the encouragement from that is growth in one area, cultivation of one of these fruits, is often going to lead to a corresponding growth in another fruit. They work in tandem. So if you see that your heart is enlarged in love, then you're actually going to find that, oh, and by the way, my heart also is growing in patience or kindness, or self-control. So what I want to do this morning is get us into the text with this first, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to itemize this list and do a bit of self-inventory. And in order for us to do that this morning, I'm going to pose six questions for us about this first fruit, the fruit of love. If you have a journal or the back of a, uh, the handout you received on the way in, I would encourage you to, to jot down these questions because they're going to demand far more than we can do in any singular sermon. The first question is, why is love the first on Paul's list? Why is love the first of these fruits on Paul's list? 
The answer to that question is clear from front to back throughout the scriptures. Jesus, in Matthew 22, in a really famous passage of scripture, is asked to sum up or to tell what is the, the greatest of all of the Old Testament commands, and how does he respond? You're to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second command is like it, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two. So what does Jesus do? He says, if you want to boil down the entirety of the Old Testament into a singular command, it's love God and love people, and he connects these two, to love God and to love people. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous wedding text. What does, he, what does he say there? You can have the greatest gifts in the world, but if you lack love, you're just a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Paul recognizes, Paul recognizes that love will protect us from both the ditch of legalism because we will respond not out of moral rules that we have to obey, and it will protect us from the ditch of using our freedom for selfish indulgence because we'll submit to one another in love, which is exactly what he says earlier in this passage. The second question then is this, what is the relationship between love and the other fruit on this list? What is the relationship between love and the other fruit on this list? If love is the high water virtue, then how does it relate to these other fruits? I want you to turn to Colossians 3 with me. Colossians 3. We're going to do a bit of Bible turning throughout this series because we're not anchored in any singular text. If you're new to the Bible, don't be shy to consult the table of contents at the front. If you've got your phone, just plug in these verses. If you don't get to them before I read them, just jot them down, and you can find them when you head home. If you're here and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please take the Bibles uh, that are provided for you. They're yours. They're our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So don't, don't feel inadequate if you struggle to find these passages that we turn to. In Colossians 3, we have a parallel letter. Paul's writing to a different church but making a very similar argument. Towards the middle of the letter, he begins to shift towards the embodiment of certain characteristics among God's people. And he says in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12, put on then, so here again we're talking character traits, marks, evidence of God's people, as God's chosen ones, holy and blameless, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And this is the phrase that I think demands our attention, this idea that love binds everything together. Now, the temptation is to read that and to read, to, to, to put a word in its place to read that binds everyone together in perfect harmony. Now, certainly, love does bind everyone together as it's demonstrated, but here the word is everything. 
And what are the things that Paul has just mentioned? The things are kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness. These are the things that love binds together. Love is the superglue of all other biblical virtues. It binds them together. It's the connectivity. So love promotes our joy because I don't have to be swept away by people's response to me or the suffering that I encounter. Love promotes my patience. It promotes my self-control. It binds these things together. It is the connective tissue between them. Thirdly, third question, where does love come from? Where does love come from? Turn over with me now to a little letter right at the end of your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. John is the voice of love. He mentions throughout his writings the centrality of the love of God and the love that we are to demonstrate for one another. And he answers the question for us clearly of the origin of, of love. Beginning reading 1 John 4, beginning in verse 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So where does love come from? The answer is it's from God. It comes from God because God is, according to these words, God is love. Love is a person. And that person, that love, was made manifest the work of Jesus, whom God sent to pay the price to bear the weight of the wrath of God for our sins. So, love flows out of, it originates from, a right understanding of God and his work through Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus could say something like this in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So God felt that his image bearers were worthy of love, so he acted to save them. And our love results from or is a response towards that love. And that love goes in two directions. It goes toward God, and it goes toward other people. 
who are worthy of our love. Our response and love of other people is based purely on a response to how we've been loved in Christ. And a moment's worth of self-reflection reveals that you were not the most worthy object of that love, right? That God stooped to love you while you were still in your trespasses and sins. And that any love that you demonstrate to others is based on that love. So then, fourth question, what form should love take? What form should our love take? Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. If you're still there, just turn back one chapter. 1 John chapter 3. What form, what what does love look like? It's the chief of all virtues. It connects other virtues to one another. It originates from God. It's a response to God's initiative through Jesus. Then what does it look like? 1 John 3, verse beginning reading in verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is not a rocket science command here, right? So this has been around from the beginning. Love one another. We should not be like Cain, verse 12, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know, love, that he, this is Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is quite the contrast, isn't it? He says, you're either like Cain or like Christ. The first murderer who demonstrated anger towards his brother and acted on that, or Christ, in verse 16, the one who laid down his life for us. Which leads to the Matt Rogers definition of love. You won't see this uh, in any brilliant print volumes, but I think it helps us get at how we embody or what form the love of Christ should take in us. I would define love this way. The sacrificial giving of yourself to promote the best interest of another. Let me say that again. The sacrificial giving of yourself to promote the best interest of another. So again, remember back uh, where we started can a person who is not indwelt by God's Spirit actually do this consistently? One commentator says it this way, love is a kind of voluntary death. 
wherein the lover dies to himself and all his own interest, not thinking of himself or caring for himself anymore, but minding nothing but how to please and gratify the party whom he loves. A kind of voluntary death, patterned after the voluntary death of Christ, who, his life was not taken from him, but willingly laid it down to promote the best interest of his people, satisfying the wrath of God and clothing them in a righteousness that they did not deserve. Which leads to a couple of implications for us. First, all true love is by definition costly. You are not loving consistently and genuinely if that love does not cost you something. The feeling, let's use marriage as an example, the feeling of in love is the rocket fuel for the action of demonstrating love. It's not a bad thing to feel the emotion of love. I'm supposed to feel an emotion of love for my wife or for my children. But that is just a small, small fraction of biblical love, which is the active choice of self-denial to promote the best interest of another. Second implication is that all true love is going to be costly. It is active. Got to do something. It's going to cost me something. And then thirdly, all true love is more than not doing harm to somebody else. So the doctor's credo of above all do no harm doesn't summarize the totality of the biblical definition of love because it is more than me making choices to not harm you. It is going one step further and saying, what does it look like to promote the best interest of those whom I love. So let's apply this to a couple of areas. Think about conflict, for example. When you are embroiled in conflict with another, you have a couple of choices playing out. One choice is to get even, right? Throw some punches, bow up and yell, settle the score, make things right. For many, the avoidance of this, getting even, is the extent of their biblical love. And so they say, I'm not going to do that, so here's what I'll do. I'll send a passive-aggressive email at like 1.30 in the morning to you that kind of hints at the fact that I like you and I wish you well and I'll just kind of take my ball and go home, right? But is that promoting the best interest of another person? Is that the demonstration of biblical love that is costly self-denial? Well, no. What does it look like to fight well, to fight in a form of biblical love? It looks like repenting and pursuing the other person. It looks like doing the hard work of seeking biblical restoration. Apply it to the area of parenting. Is true love demonstrated if I merely avoid the outburst of anger? Would my kids make the same mistake for the 87th time that day? Is the proper response in biblical love silent frustration until bedtime? And hoping that bedtime comes a little bit earlier tonight than it should normally. Or is biblical love the careful consideration 
of why my children are responding in the way they are and how I might parent them in such a way that pushes them towards Christ. Man, that work is tough. That work requires careful consideration and self-denial. It requires thoughts about how I might promote the best interest of my wayward five-year-old. Silent frustration isn't biblical love. It is going that next step. So then the fifth question, how do I cultivate love? How do I cultivate this in my life? If I'm going to assume for us all that the sacrificial giving of ourselves to promote the best interest of other people doesn't come naturally for us. None of us are walking out at the end of that application saying, bro, I just crushed that, right? I nailed it this week. I get it right every time. My marriage is a perfect reflection of that. How do I cultivate that? Is it even possible to? Well, good news. Good news is found in 1 Thessalonians 3. No need to turn there. I'll just read it. Paul prays over the church. He says, now may, the God, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So, if Paul praises for the church, it is possible for the Lord to make you, me, increase in love and abound in love. He can make me increase and abound in love. How does he, how does he do that? Look at 1 John 4, 16. Kind of bouncing back and forth between these chapters. First John 4, 16. How does God make us increase and abound in love? It says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So once again, the author holds up this characteristic of love as evidence of whether or not you are truly in Christ. Those who are truly in Christ are marked with an overwhelming Love for one another. And as a pastor of a local church, I think it's important for us to to make the point, make the observation, that no amount of fellowship structures in the church are going to make up for a lack of authentic love amongst God's people. You can't structure love, right? It's very common, and we often say it as well, like we have a fellowship hall down there, right? You have fellowship hall, you have fellowship structures, you have fellowship meals, you have fellowship small groups. No amount of that type of scaffolding is going to make up for a lack of authentic love 
for one another. If the Spirit is actually at work in the church, love is going to happen whether those structures are there or not. In fact, if love is actually manifest among God's people, they'll create the structures as a response to the love that they're demonstrating in one another. Right? You're not going to have to manufacture hospitality meals because God's people are just going to invite each other over and show love for one another. You're not going to have to create massive care structures or hospital visitation lists, not to minimize that, but if love is actually manifest among God's people, they're going to do these things. This is just the outworking of God's Spirit in the life of the church. Now, as the church grows, you're going to have to create systems and structure that help make sure nobody falls through the cracks. But if we are all, all of us who are members here at Cherrydale, if we're all growing in God's Spirit and embodying these virtues, that's going to be just on top of, that's going to be super abundant grace on top of what you're already doing and demonstrating amongst one another. And there is a real danger. If that type of love is not being demonstrated, then the author minces no words, right? We're, we're liars. God's love doesn't dwell in us. So what do, we want to, what do we do if we want to grow in that? He tells us right back at the beginning. We do two things. We abide in God and we abide in love. We abide in God and we abide in love. If you find in your inventory of yourself that you have room to grow in the sacrificial giving of yourself to promote the best interests of another, the steps are A, abide in God. 1 John 3, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And we know, and by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the best way to see your heart expand in biblical love is to continually and consistently reflect on Jesus. To continually and consistently reflect on the gospel. And then secondly and perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, to abide in love. That seems strange. It seems strange to say abide in love if we define love according to the world system. Like, how do you abide in an emotion? You can't abide in an emotion, but you can abide in an action. You can abide in the consistent, active, giving of yourself to promote the best interest of another. So abiding in love means consistently, willingly placing yourself in positions where these fruits must be embodied. It means taking steps, even when you don't feel like it, to demonstrate this trait. C.S. Lewis, uh, I think, helps us see the outworking of this and how our actions drive our emotions. He says this in Mere Christianity. Do not waste time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. As soon as we do, we're going to find one of life's greatest secrets. When we're behaving as if we love someone, we will presently come to love that person. A bit later, he says, they are told that, all, that they all have to love God and they cannot find any such feeling in themselves. 
What are they to do if they don't feel like they love God? The answer is exactly the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings of love for God. Ask yourself this. If I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you found that answer, go and do it. Lewis's point is simple. Our actions are a far better driver for our emotions than vice versa. If we wait to feel the emotion of love, we are far less likely to act. But if we act, we will find that our actions drive our hearts. They drive our emotions. So we abide, we, we do loving things for one another, even when we don't perhaps feel like it. And then lastly, what is the outcome of this love? What's the end result of this love? What's supposed to ha- what is supposed to happen? Question six. John 13, Jesus gives us a sense of that in verse 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. And then verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's quite common to hear people say something like this. Um, Don't judge me. Don't look at my life. I'm not the, the standard. You need to look to Jesus. And there's a sense of truth to that, right? We don't want to put ourselves in the spotlight. Um, we don't want to flaunt our spirituality in such a way that demonstrates pride. But here, Jesus gives the outside world permission to gauge the authenticity of our claim to know God. He said, yeah, don't flaunt your spirituality before a watching world, but the watching world has every right to look at your life and assess the validity of the claim that you make. He says, all people are going to know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. Uh, Christopher Wright, uh, in his book, Cultivating the Fruits of the Spirit, makes this Point, he said, uh, pointing to a London bus campaign that ran a series of ads, said something like, um, there's probably no God, so just relax and enjoy your life. Okay, Running on all the, the buses. And Wright says, what stands to reason, based on John 13, that people who are living in London should be able to see that ad and say something like, well, I know that can't be true. Because I know Sam, and Mark, and Jose, and Ralph, and they demonstrate the fruit of God's Spirit and love. They are clear reflections of God at work in their life. I know there has to be a God because of the love I see demonstrated in them. So our love serves as a testimony. It serves as a witness. It serves as an authenticating ground for the fruit of God's Spirit at work within us. Jesus gives the outside world the authority to gauge whether or not we are truly born again on the basis of our observable love towards all people. So then, 
If that is true, your neighbors, your co-workers, those who observe your life on social media, is there a demonstrable, can't pronounce the word, is there a clear demonstration of the love of God such that makes people think there must be truth to their testimony. God must be at work in their lives. The outcome is that the mission of God moves forward through the love of God's people for one another and for the outside world. So then, this is motivation for us to strive to grow in the embodiment of biblical love. You want to make disciples? You want to be a part of the Great Commission? There is no greater outlet for that than go and practice biblical love. So, church, what would it look like for you? What would need to change in your life if you believed God's word to you this morning? What form does love need to take in your life? Let's allow the Spirit of God who is at work in God's people to press that question into our hearts and bring about application that is a demonstration of God's Spirit at work in us as we pray to close. Our Father, it is an astounding reality to to think that you are by your Spirit at work cultivating our hearts, that you are by your Spirit changing us, that we can be transformed, we can be conformed to your image that we can renounce the fruits of our flesh, the works that come so easily as a result of our sinful nature apart from Christ. And we can see your Spirit bring transformation, bring character, and produce that good work in us. Would you give us laser-like intentionality and focus in the area of love this morning? Would you press us in areas where we are not sacrificially giving of ourselves to promote the best interest of others? Would you cause us to gaze upon Christ, the perfect manifestation of self-giving love? And would that have multitude of effect among your people this coming week in marriages and parenting and small group and places of conflict would we be the kind of people that are allowing your spirit to bring transformation to our hearts in this key area as we close our service by thinking of your love and song would you stir our hearts Would you cause us to abide in your love? And would you propel that out of us in active obedience as we go for Christ's sake? Amen.